Policymakers, politicians, activists, business people, and even ordinary people are more and more skeptical of digital platforms like Facebook, or shall we say, Meta. This skepticism is not just about the murky decision-making power of algorithms. It's also that there is increasing awareness about the operation of digital platforms as private entities. Entities which, even if they have some values as mediums of publicity or some public utility, are not publicly owned. Put simply, whatever they say about their mission, digital platforms, ranging from Facebook to Google to Amazon to Airbnb to Uber, are first and foremost about making money. Making money in a way that relies substantially on extracting data about us, what we do, when, where, and how we do things, as well as our explicit signals about why. Very often, this extraction also enables an approximation of who we might be. It is true that data mining can divulge intimate personal details about us. But what is principally happening in such processes is the construction of user models, a profile which we match often fairly precisely, a model of a situated user that can be targeted for advertising or marketing or triggered in various ways to remain faithful to the platform. And when users are faithful to these platforms, they generate yet more data for extraction. These insights have inspired a revival of sorts amongst political economy and Marxist approaches to media, towards a new critique of digital or platform capitalism. But is this capitalism? Or is it, as suggested speculatively by Mackenzie Wark, something worse? Media Technology and Culture is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we'll be taking a thematic look at media, understood as technologies. We'll explore the histories of media, as well as more recent developments, and not always necessarily in a linear progression. Some of you listeners will also be students in my module, Media Technology and Culture, in which we'll discuss and work on some of these themes in more detail. This is the second edition of the series, and this episode is an entirely new one, which I was unable to record for the first edition. In this, our tenth and final episode, we focus on extractive technologies. The key idea I want to get across is this. There are compelling reasons for deep concern about the business models of digital platforms, which are based on extracting extraordinary volumes of data about us and our behavior. But we should also be careful with the explanatory frameworks we use when trying to make sense of these developments. Shoshana Zubov, thank you very much for coming into the studio. Um, Someone who was very kind about your book, and lots of people have been very kind about it, said that it makes us aware of the kind of things that we should be aware of but haven't been so far. What should we be aware of? I think we should be aware of that the digital world that has formed itself around us and the road to a digital future that we're on right now is something that has been hijacked by what I regard as a rogue economic logic that I call, of course, surveillance capitalism. The surveillance capitalists have tried to get us to believe that their practices are the inevitable outgrowth of digital technologies. If we want digital, then we have to go along with 
their surveillance operations and the consequences of those operations. Shoshana Zubov's 2019 book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, has had a significant and high-profile impact in debates about digital technologies today, not just among scholars. The book has been widely reviewed across mainstream media. On its paperback cover, it's prominently presented as an international bestseller and a Barack Obama pick of 2019. It's a substantial book, almost 700 pages. We'll only be focusing here on its opening gambit. Zuboff starts with an old question. Will we be at home or exile with technological change? This is a familiar theme for Zuboff. It was also at the heart of her 1988 book, In the Age of the Smart Machine, in which she considered the implications of information technologies in the workplace. Now, Zuboff says, we can no longer limit our frame of reference to working life. The tension we experience today between home and exile relates to raw life itself. Here's a quote. The sense of home slipping away provokes an unbearable yearning. The Portuguese have a name for this feeling, saudade, a word said to capture the homesickness and longing of separation from the homeland among emigrants across the centuries. Now, the disruptions of the 21st century have turned these exquisite anxieties and longings of dislocation into a universal story that engulfs each one of us. End quote. Depending on your point of view, you may find these appeals to home to be a little romantic. But we can put that to one side. Zubov's main point here is that these disruptions we are experiencing today are not inherently about technology. The remote control was supposed to make our lives easier, but it can be a technology tar pit for people with failing eyesight or arthritic hands. For them, the gesture pendant. What we want to do is make a system that can help people uh, control the devices through simple gesture. An infrared system linked to household devices recognizes pre-programmed gestures and responds. One of Zuboff's starting examples is the AWARE Home, an experimental research program at the Georgia Institute of Technology, also known as Georgia Tech, which includes an actual 5,000-square-foot home. Zuboff focuses on the early days of the AWARE Home, at the beginning of the 21st century, when it, along with other experiments in the then-emerging field of ubiquitous computing, was emerging as a precursor to the smart home we hear about so much today a home filled with more and more devices making up the so-called Internet of Things, which we discussed in Episode 6. The prevailing assumption of the engineers and computer scientists building the early aware home was that technologies were there to serve the home's occupant. A technology like the infrared gesture pendant you just heard about was principally about accessibility. It's an example of how the early aware home placed a priority on users trusting technologies to provide for their needs. A trust built not only on their usability, but their understandability, and crucially, their preservation of the user's individual sovereignty. The smart homes we are seeing emerge today, infused by the Internet of Things, are not like this. Zuboff gives the example of the Google Nest smart thermostat. Like the experimental technologies imagined for the aware home, Google Nest works by collecting data so as to learn about the home environment and its dwellers' behaviors. With this data, it can actuate various adjustments to the home systems or notify its users about actions they might take. But there's a difference. To fully use Google Nest in your home, 
you need to enter into a series of legal frameworks. A privacy policy, a terms of service agreement, and end-user licensing agreement. Zuboff does not split hairs here. These stipulations are oppressive on your individual privacy and security because they lay unilateral claim to, quote, your experience and the knowledge that flows from it, end quote. And you really don't have a choice. If you want this thing to work properly, particularly over the long term when software updates will bring inevitable changes, ostensive improvements, essential tweaks, you effectively have to agree to waive your rights over your data. It is becoming very commonplace for us to give this contractual consent about our data. Zuboff suggests it's as if everyday life today involves repeatedly entering into a new kind of Faustian compact, a deal with the devil, a deal from which we cannot extricate ourselves, even though we know it's unfair, a situation on which we are so dependent, we need to console ourselves with sentiments like, I have nothing to hide. Surveillance capitalism is, for Zuboff, a, quote, darkening of the digital dream and its rapid mutation into a voracious and utterly novel commercial project, end quote. It's a noun that she defines dictionary-like at the beginning of the book, before the table of contents. Surveillance capitalism claims human experience as a free raw material, renders it into data, and uses it in ways that are hidden from us. It's not just about knowing us, but automating us. It's a logic of behavioral modification. In historical terms, it's a rogue mutation of capitalism, a new era in which we are seeing unprecedented concentrations of wealth, knowledge, and power. It's a threat to human nature parallel to the Industrial Revolution and an expropriation of human rights and sovereignty. All right. Now, I I just want to say a few things and then we'll we'll ring this bell and we'll, we'll get back to work. Right now, this all seems like a big deal. Going public is an important milestone in our history. But here's the thing. Our mission isn't to be a public company. Our mission is to make the world more open and connected. In the past eight years, all of you out there have built the largest community in the history of the world. You've done amazing things that we never would have dreamed of. And I can't wait to see what you guys all do going forward. You're hearing Mark Zuckerberg address Facebook employees before he rung the bell opening the Nasdaq market on 18th of May, 2012, when Facebook held its initial public offering, or IPO. The IPO itself was a failure, with the value of Facebook shares immediately plummeting, and then taking a year just to get back to their initial value. What's notable, though, is how Zuckerberg frames the event. This isn't really, it seems, about a growing private company becoming publicly traded, even though that was self-evidently what was happening. No, this was just another step in a journey, one apparently fueled by nothing more than altruism towards making the world a more connected place. Zuboff suggests that it is through narratives like this that surveillance capitalism has arrived so suddenly and apparently unexpectedly. The new rulers arrived, at first, as emancipators, peddling unprecedented technologies that we didn't fully understand. It all seemed so unthreatening. Google's former corporate mission statement was, don't be evil, 
And even though it was dropped in 2015 when Google was subsumed under Alphabet, the parent company still asks that its employees, subsidiaries, and controlled affiliates should do the right thing. The unprecedented complexity and apparent unknowability of the technologies at hand is often put forward as the chief problem of our time. But Zuboff argues unequivocally for a strong explanatory order of priority. Quote, Our effort to confront the unprecedented begins with the recognition that we hunt the puppet master, not the puppet. A first challenge to comprehension is the confusion between surveillance capitalism and the technologies it employs. Surveillance capitalism is not technology. It is a logic that imbues technology and commands it into action. Surveillance capitalism is a market form that is unimaginable outside the digital milieu, but it is not the same as the digital. As we saw in the history of the aware home, The digital can take many forms depending on the social and economic logics that bring it to life. It is capitalism that assigns the price tag of subjugation and helplessness, not the technology. During the past few decades with the rise of the internet, platform technologies have become the new cool. Why do we keep hearing about platforms? It's a valid question because it's actually a very old concept. Many markets rest on a platform. These are technological building blocks which we can call platforms. The somewhat hidden role that platform providers play in our connected society. These were the hardcore, you know, the major platforms that were going to define digital multinationals and he's just published platform capitalism. So the idea of platform capitalism is that there's a a sort of new business model that's emerged. Who are the supposed technological puppet masters of surveillance capitalism? If we were compelled to come up with a single word to name them, it would probably be platforms. But what exactly are platforms? This is a term that seems to be everywhere, but which is also used very elastically. It crops up as an adjective or adverb to modify a whole range of practices and things. Platform architecture, platform design, platform ecosystem, platform governance, platform markets, platform politics platform labor, even platform thinking. But most of the time, platform comes at us as a noun when it is associated with a growing range of digitally mediated, cloud-based, data-driven entities. In a highly cited 2015 article in Social Media and Society, Anne Hellman put forward a convincing technical definition of platforms. She looked at how Facebook evolved from a mere social networking website to a platform, through the development of its Application Programming Interface, or API. API establishes the rules for data flows between Facebook and external third-party websites and apps. Through its API, what we call Facebook has become distributed across a wide range of external websites, applications, and services. One simple example is how you can sign into a range of services using your Facebook username and password. Through processes like these, Facebook spread its tentacles outward, yet without diluting itself. On the contrary, Facebook increasingly set the rules of the game for a new kind of platform ecosystem, one in which third-party developers had to ensure their websites and apps were platform-ready. Although this technical definition of platform can also be applied to many other digital companies, such as Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, or Google, in practice, the term platform remains highly ambiguous. Quite early in the history of all these debates, in 2010, 
Tarleton Gillespie pointed out in a short essay in New Media and Society that the term platform is used by the tech sector precisely because it is so flexible. Sure, it can mean a platform in a technical sense, but it can also mean a platform for expression or a platform of entrepreneurial opportunity. Above all, says Gillespie, the ambiguity of platform gives these new digital entities a way to present themselves as essentially neutral. We might ask, are digital platforms just the latest in a long line of monopolistic media? The Hollywood golden age, extending from the 1920s through the 1950s, for example, was defined by a system of vertical integration. A system in which films were principally produced on studios' own premises, by personnel often under long-term contracts, then distributed through the company's own division, before being screened at theaters which were also owned by the studio. Or, to give another example, how... From around the 1960s and into the 21st century, there were repeated mergers and acquisitions in which companies such as Disney, Comcast, AT&T, and Sony grew into horizontally integrated conglomerates. New media empires composed of both the distribution technologies and the content of convergent media. It's true that these examples point to the construction of large-scale corporate media ecosystems, which concentrate the ownership of media production and intellectual property. But if we compare these to large-scale social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, or Weibo, there is a difference. Social media platforms are not so much about concentrating the ownership of production or intellectual property. Rather, they own digital environments. These are environments which more or less anyone can interact with anyone. But also environments, as Jose Van Dyke puts it in her 2013 book, The Cultural of Connectivity, in which the data of the users, quote, a byproduct of making connections and staying connected online has quickly evolved into a valuable resource as engineers found ways to code information into algorithms that help brand a particular platform of online sociality and make it profitable in online markets, end quote. To varying degrees, this data mining business model, arising first with social media platforms, has expanded to an increasingly vast range of tools, services, and companies also often called platforms. Netflix, Spotify, Google, PayPal, Deliveroo, Uber, Indeed, Amazon, and Airbnb, for example, are among a growing range of platforms offering video on demand, music streaming, search, payment, services, food delivery, urban transport, job listings, shopping, and accommodation. In her influential 2018 book, The Platform Society, written with Thomas Powell and Martine Duvall, Van Dyke has argued that the proliferation of this platform model is unevenly reshaping societies around the world, and posing difficult questions around how such societies might still prioritize public values. But for many authors, including for example Nick Cernicek, these developments represent a systemic shift to a set of new business models. A whole series of companies now model themselves as platforms, seeking, in different ways, to derive economic growth from a new raw material, data. In the face of declining profitability in manufacturing, Cernicek says, we are now witnessing the rise of a platform capitalism. Let's alight here on the notion that the extractive technologies we're discussing in this episode should be understood via capitalism. That is, capitalism as an explanatory framework. 
as a way of understanding what might really be going on here. If we want to be precise about this sort of thing, it would perhaps make sense to draw on a Marxian analysis. For this, we can turn to Mackenzie Wark. In her 2019 book, Capital is Dead, Wark reflects on the long trajectory of her work into the new kinds of class relations which come about when information becomes property. Where Wark goes with this is striking. She questions whether our emerging conditions should really be called capitalism at all. One of the things I think is symptomatic of a a kind of blockage in thinking is when the language starts to feel like it's not really doing the work. And so we talk about capitalism, but then we keep putting modifiers on on the front of it. So, uh, and the latest is to call it neoliberal capitalism. So it's like, wait a minute, you're using a modifier that itself also has a modifier on it, which just seems to me to be bad poetry. What if this isn't actually even capitalism anymore? It's something worse that superseded it. History moved on. All that is solid melts into air. All that is sacred is profane. Marx had this very, very dynamic sense of what had been ushered in by capitalism, but somehow we then treat it as if it's an essence that's eternal, that goes on for all time, and only changes in appearances. And I want to question that sort of metaphysics in how we think. Work speculatively suggests that we are seeing the emergence of two distinct kinds of classes, which may not quite fit within the notion of capitalism. First, there appears to be a new kind of ruling class, which Wark names vectoralists. The vectoralist class can be seen as a layer on top of the existing ruling classes of capitalists and landlords. But rather than owning the means of production or owning land, vectoralists own and control the vector. The vector is an abstract term that Wark uses to describe the infrastructure that channels information. As she says, quote, you can own stocks or flows of information, but far better to own the vector, the legal and technical protocols for making otherwise abundant information scarce, end quote. Second, there appears to be a new kind of subordinate class, which Wark names hackers. The hacker class can be seen as a layer on top of the existing subordinate classes of workers and farmers. Hackers in this context are not necessarily just enthusiasts of computer hardware or software, or activists like the members of the Anonymous Collective. Wark uses hacker more generally, to denote the class which produces new information. By new information, Wark means, quote, whatever intellectual property law recognizes as new. It's a strange kind of production, where the farmer grows crops through a seasonal cycle, and the worker stamps out repetitive units of commodities, The hacker has to use their time in a different way, to turn the same old information into new. The workplace nightmare of the worker is having to make the same thing over and over again, against the pressure of the clock. The workplace nightmare of the hacker is to produce different things over and over, against the pressures of the clock. End quote. For work, victorialists don't replace capitalists and landlords, nor do hackers replace workers and farmers. These classes coexist today, but within a new kind of hierarchy. The higher tier within these ruling and subordinate classes both coordinate and are dependent on the lower tiers. The hacker class, for example, helps organize logistics networks, but also needs cleaners and a supply of avocados. The vectoralist class are increasingly stipulating the overall shape of global markets, but they still need land and machinery for their data centers. This observation that capitalism may no longer accurately describe our era is distinctly Marxian. 
Wark observes that, for Marx, capitalism was less an abstraction than something he observed through particular forces of production, or using our own terms here, specific technological capacities. At the time Marx was writing, theories of capital did not account for the exploitation of labor. But the implications of steam power as a force of production, as a technological capacity, made that exploitation visible. What made Marx's intervention in economics distinct, says Wark, was that he thought through his moment. A historical moment, which was not so much determined by particular technologies or forces of production, but from which it cannot fully be separated. So our task, Wark says, should be to turn our attention to forces of production now, to the technological capacities of our day. This is to say, we should be careful about drawing on ideas rooted in the 19th century to make sense of the present. As Wark observes, quote, I really am puzzled by why we should use blocks of linguistic material from Marx's time to understand our time. Why use Marx's playful modifications of the fashionable philosophy, the popular science, the political tracts, or the technological metaphors of the mid-19th century? When poets or novelists inhabit old forms like that, we immediately think it's dated or ironically retro. But somehow, we want our critical theory to still be about eternal capital, as if it were some subgenre of steampunk. End quote. It's also worth reflecting critically on what scholars are doing when we appeal to explanatory frameworks such as capitalism. The geographer Clive Barnett has argued, for example, that the frequent invocation of neoliberalism is too often a form of consolation for left academics. It conveniently allows us to gesture, often without expansion, at what's really going on in any complex situation, dismissing what doesn't fit as mere surface appearances. And at the same time, it gives us a way to align ourselves in the academy with those out there that we style as acting from a position of contestation or resistance. The issue is not so much the value of concepts such as capitalism or neoliberalism. These are ideas around which real-world and tangible struggles, organizations, programs, laws, and regulations are built. If scholars, activists, politicians, regulators, or others think that our current situation is one of economic crisis or emergence, it is not necessarily wrong to conceptualize this as a problem vis-a-vis capitalism. But capitalism, as an overarching explanatory label, can have its limits. The reason is simple. It can get in the way of a nuanced understanding of the chicken and egg relationship that we introduced in episode one, and can rephrase here for our current concern. Of course technologies are bound up in political economy, but political economy is also inherently technological. So that brings us to the end of the series, but perhaps you might think of it as a kind of beginning. After all, we've only scratched the surface of thinking about media as technologies. I hope this inspires you to seek out more from other voices and across various mediums. If you like what you did hear from me, Check out my podcast channel, Publicly Cited, where I hope to bring you some new series focused on different, if still related, topics. And watch out as well for further editions of this series in the future. So until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to Media, Technology, and Culture. <laughs>